turn to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to try to unravel this morning what is probably one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to understand and interpret, or as a friend of mine says, we're going to try to unscrew the inscrutable this morning. The, uh, one of the problems, probably the, the basic problem in understanding 1 Corinthians is that it's a letter. It's not a book, it's not a sermon, it's not a theological treatise, although it certainly touches on theological issues. It's essentially a letter. And one of the problems in understanding a letter is that the correspondents always have certain knowledge that's held in common that we don't have. And that's what uh, is behind this letter in 1 Corinthians. There was quite a bit of, that we call 1 Corinthians, there was quite a bit of correspondence going back and forth and a great deal of information that they understood about one another, things that had been said prior to the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, and, and we're unaware of what this correspondence was about. Last week, Jim Webb brought a letter into me that he had received from a girl in London that he led to Christ this past summer, a young nursing student that uh, he had met while he was knocking on doors. And uh, as I was reading through the letter, she kept referring to a love letter that Jim had given her. And she signed off uh, lovingly, Lorna, or I've forgotten her name now. And uh, I knew what this love letter was because Jim had told me uh, it was the New Testament. He had given her a, a Bible and told her this was a love letter from God. And that's what she was referring to. But I thought, if Jim were married, or if he had a girlfriend here in Boise, now that would be a difficult letter to explain. <laughs> she might not understand. Now that's our problem, you see, in understanding 1 Corinthians. We don't know everything that these two groups, Paul and the Corinthians, uh, we, don't, we don't know what they held in common, what information they had. But there are certain things that we can uh, surmise. One is that they had written a letter asking about various matters of practical application, application of New Testament principles, apostolic principles to life. And some of these things had to do with cultural things, conventional things, customs. And uh, that seems to be what's, what's behind 1 Corinthians 11. They had asked about the practice of wearing uh, some sort of head covering in, in church meetings, in public meetings of the church. And we know that it was customary in cities like Corinth for women to wear a head covering in order to signify that they were married women and thus subject to their husbands. It was some sort of band that they wore around their head that had a, a net, somewhat like macrame, that uh, they wore over their face, which signified that they were married. And it would probably, the modern counterpart would be a, a wedding band. Single women didn't wear this head covering, but married people did. And when a woman would go out in public with this covering, she was free from harassment from men in the marketplace and on the streets, because if, uh, if women weren't uh, covered, they often were teased and harassed and, and made fun of, ridiculed in various ways. So this was their protection. This signified that they were under the protection of a man. Now, the veil that modern-day Arabs wear is not the counterpart. That signifies something entirely different. But as best we're able to determine, this head covering was very much like a wedding band today, which indicated that they were married 
and under the protection of, uh, of their husband. Now we have to appreciate what, uh, what the plight of women was like in the city of Corinth. They were treated very much as, as chattel. Or more appropriately, they were treated like cattle. They were the possessions of their husbands. Their husbands could do as they please. But uh, wives were oppressed. They were treated as second-class citizens. They had no voting privileges. They couldn't divorce their husbands. Things were very, very difficult for women. But uh, when the gospel came, the, the state of women was always changed. That's always true. Whenever the gospel is preached and understood, preached accurately and adequately and understood accurately, it always changes the state of women. They're elevated. They're given respect and honor and dignity in the eyes of their men. Because, you see, the, the exalted state of women is rooted in creation. It's in the order of things that women are joint heirs with men of eternal life. They, like men, are created in the image, and uh, uh, they have all of the privileges that a man has. And whenever the gospel is preached, the status of women is always, always elevated. Now, apparently what had happened is that when the gospel came to Corinth, families began to change. Husbands began to love their wives and respect them and show them honor. And so their status as women was, uh, was elevated. And they began to think, then, why should we have to wear these head coverings any longer? Why not burn our headbands and, and demonstrate our liberty and, and our new condition as, as Christian wives? And uh, they had written Paul to ask why they should continue to carry out this insufferable practice of wearing, wearing a covering. And particularly in the public meetings of the church, where above all, Women had a, an exalted position. And so Paul writes in order to answer this question. Now let's read this uh, paragraph beginning with verse 2. You'll remember that verse 1 properly belongs with the chapter that precedes it. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The traditions to which Paul refers here are the apostolic traditions. The word simply means those things that are passed down. And he's referring to the things that the apostles had taught uh, the church in Corinth. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. He begins, as Paul so often does, by establishing a foundation principle. There is an order of things that is rooted in creation, and that order he spells out here in verse 3. That, he says, is part of the apostolic tradition. You were taught the creation story. You were taught God's uh, universal order, natural order of things when I was with you. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to argue that the custom of wearing a headband or some sort of covering signifying your submission to your husband, the woman's submission to her husband, is appropriate in that culture because to challenge that tradition is to challenge the principle, the basic principle that he's established in verse 3. Every man who has something literally down from his head, that is, if he wore the headband, 
he would disgrace his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And if one is inclined to be contentious, we, that is, we apostles, have no other practice or custom, nor have the churches of God. And you can see from this reading of this paragraph that there's enough here to send any dedicated feminist right into orbit. And therefore, we need to explain a number of very difficult uh, points that Paul makes here. Note first that he does root his argument in the order of things as God has established them. Verse 3, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, the order in which he states this hierarchy of leadership is very important. He begins by saying, Christ is the head of the man. And it's good that he begins there. He simply states it as a fact. He doesn't say he wishes Christ were the head of every man. He says he is the head of every man. Christ is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we're either given the option of bending the knee to him now, or, as Paul says, when we see him in his glory, we will all bend the knee. That's why Paul says he's the head of every man, even those that reject his leadership. It's a fact rooted in God's created order of things. But I believe the reason Paul begins with Christ's headship over the man is because he wants to teach us about the nature of headship. How did Christ exercise his headship? That's the question. You see, here's where men often go astray, because once they discover, or they are taught, or they learn, that God intends them to be head of their home, they begin to exercise that lordship, that leadership, in a very heavy-handed way. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, how did the Lord lead his bride? Well, he was a servant who leads, or he's a leader who serves. He exercised his leadership in a quiet way. As Isaiah puts it, he didn't raise his voice in the streets. He didn't stomp around the earth and shout and demand that everyone give him the allegiance that was rightfully his. He could have. He was Lord. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, but he didn't demand that everyone bend the knee to him. 
He didn't insist that everyone treat him as Lord. He served. He washed their feet. That was a servant's task. Paul says that even though he had the rights and privileges of God, he emptied himself of the use of all of those privileges, and he became a servant. Now that, Paul says, is the nature of our headship as men. We are to lead. We are given the ultimate responsibility. We are to determine the direction which our family goes. That's clearly stated in Scripture. But our leadership is a leadership of servanthood. It is not a matter of getting what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. Our wives are not our slaves or our servants. We are their servants. That's how we work out our leadership. I remember a number of years ago going to the Furs to speak at a couples conference, and I was teaching this principle, and uh, there were a group of people there from Canada, and among them were a couple of lumberjacks, and there was this one unforgettable character that was about 6'4", and he weighed about 250 pounds, and his wife was equally large. She was about 6'1", big, raw-boned, strong girl. She worked out in the woods with him, and she was, they were quite a couple. And uh, he was a very quiet, mild-mannered man, and she was a very strong personality, outspoken, very warm, outgoing person, talked all the time. And uh, he was telling me that when he first got married, they really had their difficulties, and he decided that he was going to serve his leadership in that home, or he would get trampled to death. And one day they were having an argument in the kitchen, and uh, he had about enough of it, so he just grabbed her by the front of the blouse and threw her down the kitchen floor and picked up a broom that was leaning against the wall, and he put the broom handle across her neck, and he stood on the straw end of the broom with one foot, and he put his foot on the other end of the broom, and he said, Now look, woman, if you ever do that again, I'll pinch your head off. <laughs> now, that's not really what Paul is talking about. <laughs> and uh, he admitted as much. And since that point, he had learned a few things about uh, leadership. It's a leadership of servanthood, you see? And that's the way Christ exercises his leadership over men. So he sets the example for us in this way. And then he tells us that the man is the head of the woman. We exercise our headship as Christ exercised his. Not stomping around the house, demanding that our wives serve us. We're not free to do as we please and to insist that everybody fall into our plans. And we're subject to the Lord. You see, he is our head. It's when a man understands that, that he's subject to the Lord, and he works out his leadership as the Lord exercised his leadership, that he, that he maintains the proper balance. He's a servant who leads. In the creation story, we're told that man was given the responsibility for bringing under his control all of the earth. He's to protect the earth and to serve it, to minister to it. Not to exploit it, but to care for it. And his wife was given to him as the helper who is like him. That's actually what the term help meet uh, signifies. A helper who is exactly like him. She's not a second-class citizen. She's not some lower form of life. She's not a beast of burden. She's not his slave. She is his helper. She's his sidekick. The word that's used in, uh, throughout the Old Testament very frequently to refer to one's wife is the word for a shepherdess. 
my colleague, my fellow laborer. That's the point. And uh, that's what we need to understand. Our wives are given to us by God as our helper to help us accomplish the goals that God has given to us as a family. We are responsible as men. We are to exercise headship. God will hold us accountable for the leadership that we exercise, but we work out that exer- that that, uh, that leadership through servanthood, and our wives are given to us as our helpers, our associates, our companions. And then to set everything in perspective, Paul states that God is the head of Christ, so that even Christ was subject. The only person in the world who's not subject to anyone is God. He's sovereign. He can do as he pleases, and of course what he pleases is always what's right. Everyone else in the world is subject. And we sometimes give the impression that men are free, they, they can do what they please. Women have to obey their husbands, but men are free. But what Paul tells us here is that there is an order of things. The Lord Jesus, during the days of his humanity, was subject to the Father. Even he was not free. He always did those things that pleased the Father. As we said last week, that ultimately is what freed him to be what God intended him to be. But he was subject to the Father. The man is subject to Christ, and the woman is to be subject to the man. And when we get that order of things straight, that's when our homes begin to be happy. That's when we were satisfied with the relationship. But when we resist that order of things, that's when life gets hard. When men are unwilling to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and women are unwilling to submit to the leadership of their husbands, life does get hard. Things begin to break down. Your love grows cold, and your home is not a happy place in in which to live. Because what we've done, you see, is violate the natural created order of things. And you can never violate God's order of things without hurting yourself. You know, there are all sorts of physical laws that govern the universe, and we can't violate those either. There's a law of inertia that states that things in motion tend to stay in motion and things at rest tend to stay at rest. It's a very convenient law. All sorts of things would go wrong if that law weren't in effect. Now, you're free to try to violate that law if you please. If you're skiing up here in Bogus Basin, you can at any time run into a tree. That's your choice. But if you do, it will have what we might say is a great impact upon your life. And we're free to try to violate moral law as well. But you see, though the consequences may not be immediate, they are always ultimate. And so Paul establishes the rightful order of things, and that becomes the foundation upon which everything else is built. Now, in verses 4 through 6, Paul's teaching here is that it is proper, in the case of the Corinthians, to wear, for the women to wear this, this covering as a sign of their submission to their husbands because of the order that God has created. It's a legitimate symbol of the relationship that a woman has to her husband. Now notice how he argues. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. But if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. 
But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Actually, he says, since women are not beautiful with their hair cut off, they should, uh, they should wear a covering. Now, he argues in a strange way. I wouldn't argue this way, but I hesitate to tilt with the Apostle Paul. His argument goes like this. If you're going to uncover yourself, you might as well shave your head. And since in the case of women, bald is not beautiful, it's better to wear a covering. Now, I wouldn't say that for men, but uh, for women, that's <laughs> certainly true. And so therefore, Paul argues, she should wear a covering over her head. And by so doing, she is free, she has the authority then to participate in these public worship services. She can pray and prophesy as her husband does. Notice she has the same privileges in the public assembly. She can stand and lead in public prayer and she can prophesy. Now prophecy, if we define it according to biblical terms, involves revelation. It's not teaching the scriptures because when one teaches, you study the scriptures and then you proclaim the truth that you learn from scripture. Prophecy involves receiving direct revelation from God and then delivering that revelation to the congregation. And it's my conviction that prophecy, as it's defined in the Bible, no longer exists today because we have the Bible. We have the message of the apostles and prophets. So there are no prophets today. Prophecy is not preaching. So he's not here talking about women preaching or teaching in the assembly. When we get to chapter 14, we'll talk a bit about women teaching in in public worship services. The New Testament teaches that it is wrong for a woman to lead the assembly or to teach the public assembly. But in the New Testament church, the apostolic church, women were free to pray and to prophesy in public as long as they were covered. That signified their submission to their husbands. They were under his authority. Now he goes on in verses 7 and following to explain the little conjunction for almost always indicates an explanation of some sort. For a man ought to have his head covered since for a man ought not to have his head covered I was going to say he's changed his argument since I read it last. <laughs> I left my reading glasses down there. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God but the woman is the glory of man. Now that's a very interesting statement. He tells us that what, what the creation story tells us, that man is created in the image of God. By image he means that man is the visible expression of the invisible God. Furthermore, man is the glory of God. Now glory, as we've seen in the past, indicates weight or value. What the world needs to see from men is the value of God, his worth. And the way they see that is to see the character of God lived out in our lives in the world. That's the purpose for which we were created. We are an instrument through which God wants to display his character. So that when people look at us, they see the worthwhileness of God. They see he's valuable. When we, that's the purpose of life. And when we fail to live to that end, we've missed the whole point of life. We're like a precision tool that's made for a particular purpose which we misuse. If we live our lives to gain power 
or to amass property or wealth solely. These things in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong, but when that becomes the object of life, we have missed the point of life. I, I saw Joshua the other day. I hope you all don't hold all these things against Joshua. He's really a very nice kid. But uh, he was prying the lid off of a paint can with uh, one of my ratchet screwdrivers. And I was appalled. And so I uh, used this as an opportunity to teach him what tools are for. Uh, it's all right to use a large screwdriver to pry the, the top off of a paint can, but you do not use a ratchet screwdriver. That's a precision tool that has a particular purpose. Now, that's something that children need to learn. That's something that all of us need to learn, and particularly about life in God. We were made for a particular purpose. And when we fail to, to live for that purpose, we've missed the whole point of life. We abuse ourselves, and we're the ones who suffer. So Paul wants us to know that the purpose of man is to live for the glory of God. But then he goes on to say that the purpose of the woman is to glorify the man. In other words, the woman is the highest expression of man's worth. Now, Paul doesn't mean that the man is to tell a woman what to do and then she does it and that, in that sense she becomes his glory. That's not his point at all. He's saying that the woman is to reflect the highest hopes and ambitions and character of manhood. Women ought to be the most beautiful things around in terms of character. You see what he's saying? When we have high hopes for our women, when we treat them with dignity and honor and respect and we love them and we treat them like joint heirs of eternal life and that's what they are see they reflect our expectations but when we're coarse and crude and rude to them and unloving then they will also express our lower expectations you ever walked into a truck stop and listen to waitresses talk very often they're simply reflecting what they've heard and what they think their men want you can measure any society if you want to know what the men are like in any society look at the women because they reflect what men expect if we treat our women like sexual objects then that's what they will become now fortunately there are some happy exceptions there are women who have a higher goal in life and that's to please God and they will live out his expectations. But in general, women in any society glorify their men. That is, they simply uh, live the way they think their men want them to live. And that's what Paul means when he says the woman is the glory of man. And then the basis for this in verses 8 and 9, for man does not originate from, wo from woman, but woman for man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. See, again, there's this order of things. The man is subject to Christ. The man gets his directives from God. He's, he's responsible to God for the direction that he takes the family. The woman is his helper for his sake to help him achieve the goals that God has given to that family. And in that sense, she is created for the man's sake. Therefore, he says, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In other words, she should properly, she should wear this uh, symbol of authority. Here he's using authority as the counterpart of the, of the head uh, gear that women wore in those days. 
because of the angels. In public worship, this head covering is an adequate symbol, an appropriate symbol of her submission to her man. Now, notice this is not, I failed to point out earlier, that this is not, he's not referring here to the submission of all women to all men. That's not the point. It's a woman to her man, to her husband. And this, this covering signifies that, uh, that submission. And he says to do so because of the angels. Now, that's a difficult phrase, and I honestly do not know exactly what Paul is talking about. There are two possibilities. There are really only two kinds of angels in the world. There are good angels and there are evil angels. And so he's either referring to good angels or evil angels. If he's referring to good angels, he's referring to the fact that the angels are observers of church order. There are a number of passages, Hebrews, other places, where we're told that angels observe the behavior of of believers when they worship together. And that may be what he's referring to. However, for myself, I think he's referring to evil angels. And uh, there are a number of other places in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Romans 8 where Paul refers to angels without any qualifying adjective and he's referring to evil angels. As in Romans 8 when he says, Not life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor angels shall separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. There he's referring to evil angels. And I think that's his reference here. This then is what I think he means, that when women violate this created order of things, God's plan, then they are subject or susceptible to demonic attack of various types, just as Eve was. When she acted independently from her man, she was subject to an attack from Satan in the form of the serpent. And I think this is where so much mental and emotional distress comes from. When women resist the leadership of their men, they will not follow God's created plan, then all sorts of distress follows. Uh, just the sense of, a, of the emptiness of life and a kind of death-like state that sets in and turmoil and unsatisfaction. And so Paul says it is necessary for women to have this symbol, which is a symbol of the deeper truth, which is their submission to their husband because of the angels. Now, you'll notice in verses 11 and 12 that Paul interrupts his argument because he wants to balance things out a bit. Women might say at this point, well, then what effect can we have on our man? If we're simply to be subject to him and he's subject to God, what can we do to have some impact upon the world of men? And this is what Paul is referring to in verses 11 and 12. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. They need each other. For as the woman originates from the man, she came from Adam's side, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. In other words, the, 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 the highest role in ministry that a woman can play is through the birth and through the rearing of men. I, I often think of the impact that, that Carolyn can have on our boys simply because she's with them so much of the time. I can only paint on one small corner of the canvas. That's all I have to work on. She has the whole canvas to work on. 
And what distresses me today is this denigration of, of the woman's role in the home. I, I personally do not feel that it's contrary to Scripture for women to work outside the home, nor is it wrong for a woman to pursue a career. But I think Scripture teaches that both husband and wife ought to make as first priority our homes. And women should never feel that it's, a, that it's beneath her dignity as a woman to invest time in a home. So often you women, particularly those of you who uh, have gone to university and you have a degree, and you wonder, what am I doing washing diapers and scrubbing floors and, and uh, chasing kids and being a recreation director and all that? There, you know, there must be something more noble to life than this. And, and, and of course, life is made up largely of changing diapers and scrubbing floors and washing dishes and windows, and, and you do feel like a maid sometimes. But what balances out that seemingly subservient position in life is the unique place that you play in the scheme of things as, as one who can mold and shape the character of men. I work with men uh, quite a bit, but I find that by the time I get to them, their character is pretty well set. But that's not true of you women. And so don't let anyone convince you. The world is trying to, but don't let the world convince you and squeeze you into its mold uh, by making you think that that's beneath you. There is no greater task than bringing a young man into the world and training that young man to be godlike in the world. And then finally, in the verses that uh, follow, verses 14 and 15, Paul argues from nature. He argues from Scripture in verses 7 through 13. And then from intuition, or nature, in verses 14 and 15. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Again, I would not argue, as Paul does in this case, but he, as an apostle, an inspired apostle, is at liberty to argue any way he wants to. His point is simply this that nature itself teaches us that women ought to have a covering. If you look around you, a woman's hair is her glory, and God has, from the very beginning of things, created women with beautiful hair, and the length of their hair itself is a covering, so that we ought to intuitively know that it's God's plan for women to be covered. Now, the length of hair is always a relative thing, and it always distressed me during the days of the Jesus movement that this passage was used to exclude from services a lot of people, a lot of young men who wore their hair long. Uh, if you know anything about history, you know that at the time Paul wrote these words, men wore their hair much longer than they do today. They wore shoulder-length hair. So that this is not a prohibition of long hair as such. That's always relative. Paul's point is that at any time in history, somehow intuitively we know that women ought to have longer hair than men. And what struck me during the hippie era was that when men started wearing their hair long, women were wearing their hair longer. It was just a natural thing for them to do. So we need to be careful about setting precise limits that men can only wear their hair down to their collars or what, whatever. That's not Paul's point. He's simply arguing that nature itself instructs us, if we have our eyes open, that women ought to have a covering. And uh, their long hair itself is a covering. And arguing back from that, Paul believes that in the church, in Corinth at that time, women should wear a covering, some sort of indication that they were subject to the leadership of their husbands. And then finally in verse 16, 
Paul concludes by saying, if one is inclined to be contentious, the word refers to one who loves to argue, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. In other words, Paul says, for me the case is closed. You women ought to wear this covering in church because it adequately symbolizes the order of things as God created them. Now the question is, why don't women wear hats today? Well, the answer is that a hat in no way symbolizes what this, what this headdress symbolized. Hats are just nice to look at. As I look out there today, and hardly you know, no one has a hat on. And uh, that's, that's customary today. In Paul's day, the covering signified something. Today it doesn't. So for myself, I don't think that this passage teaches that women have to wear a covering in the public meetings of the church. It's not important what you wear on your head. What's important is what's in your heart. The reality, you see, is not the symbol, it's the submission to your husband. Now, this is where I believe that women will find their highest satisfaction. I uh, discovered a quotation from Taylor Caldwell, the uh, authoress who um, has gained worldwide fame for her books. And she was asked about the measure of satisfaction that she received from her career, and she writes, There is no solid satisfaction in my life. There is no home, no freedom, no hope, no joy, no expectation for tomorrow, no contentment. I would rather cook a meal for a man and feel myself in the protection of his arms than have all the citations and awards and honors I have received worldwide, including the ribbon of Legion of Honor in my property and my bank accounts. They mean nothing to me. And I am only one among the millions of sad women like myself. That's quite a statement. And I think she speaks for many. Though there's nothing wrong with a career, and certainly many Christian women may choose that route or to work outside the home, I really believe that your ultimate satisfaction as a woman will be found in your submission to your husband, the training of your children, the working out of your life in Christ in your home. That's where you'll find your ultimate satisfaction. I think it's also true for men. That they need to give leadership. We need to give leadership. The right kind of godly leadership in our homes. And if we'll follow God's plan, then our marriages will be what God wants them to be. The thing that has appalled me over the past few months is the, the, the large number of homes in our community that are breaking up just one after another. And in some cases, without any real desire to set things right. It's my conviction that no home has gone so far, no, no marriage has gone so far, that it's beyond reclamation. God can rebuild any relationship if we want to submit to God's order of things. As we, as, if we as men will be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course that's where women begin as well, and then we'll give the right kind of leadership spiritually and morally and physically in our homes. Be servants and protectors, leaders, lovers in our home. And women will submit graciously to that kind of leadership without resisting. And God can make that a place not only where Christians dwell, but a place where the Lord Jesus Christ himself dwells and his character is exhibited. I think that's the way men can become men and women can become women.